Welcome to the Mead Podcast. I'm Tom, the founder of Gosnells. And I'm Will, the head brewer here at Gosnells. This is our podcast where we are going to be chatting about all things mead and booze. Uh, each week we take a, either a mead enthusiast or a mead maker and we sit them down to a bunch of questions about why they love mead. Uh, so yeah, so thanks to everyone who's spared some time for that, uh, from their busy schedules. I know everyone in the mead world is super busy at the moment. Yeah, and thanks everybody for their continued support over the last uh, God, couple of years now. So entering into the fourth season of the mead podcast. Fourth season. So thank you all for your support. And uh, Well, yeah, let's just get into it. Let's go. Hi, Will. How are you? you yeah, right? good. I'm good. So we're, we're joined with, uh, by Michael from Moonlight Meadery. Uh, hi, Michael. How are you today? I'm excellent. Thank you. Whereabouts in the world? You're in Vermont, I understand, right? Uh, New Hampshire. Next New Hampshire, state over. Next state over. Oh, cool. Uh, and what, what is the weather like there? Is it spring yet? Uh, the leaves are starting to come into bloom. Uh, some flowers are starting to show up on the trees. The daffodils are out and everything. Um, it's spring. <laughs> yeah. It's still a little yeah, cold. We're going to be at, well... 54 degrees Fahrenheit today. Okay, yeah. So that's below room temperature. That's about all. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's about 17, 16 degrees. No, that's uh, even lower. Uh, that. Well, 20 degrees Celsius or so. Oh, 20. So then London, that is a scorching yeah, hot day. So it's, uh, we would take that. <laughs> yeah. um, we've had a bit of a run of really good weather where it's been up to like 17 or 18 degrees Celsius. You know, that sunny days we had were only yeah. 14, 13 oh, degrees. Right, okay. And they were. They were delicious. Uh, and everyone in the UK, because we've been under sort of re- lockdown restrictions. So um, they've now opened up uh, drinking outside again. And everyone's, lots of faces of people sitting in the in the rain, just drinking, which is always very English way of dealing with yeah, problems. Yeah, it's needed, I think. I think yeah, it's needed for true. everybody. But uh, yeah. um, let, let, let's get into this. You can talk about the weather. Uh, as, I'm uh, active. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for 45 minutes. Um, do you want to just uh, give a little bit of a round yeah, so uh, Moonlight Meadery, uh, I founded the company um, 12, 11 years ago, um, started in my garage, and I've been making mead since uh, 1995 as a home brewer, took home fairly large number of awards from that, and uh, every year we've entered a competition since we went pro, we've won medals, and um, a couple of years back, we took home two best of shows in one year, uh, last year we were yeah, Meadery great. of the Year champion from the San Diego International competition and i've been hunting for that trial free for a little while um, my friends had suggested i should enter and first year we got a medal and then next year we got a few more and uh sorry that's right <laughs> <laughs> hey burn i'm right in the middle of the podcast can i call you back about an hour thanks there we go she's happy um you guys still see me okay yeah, 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 we're all good. We're all good. Oh. Um, so yeah, I've been hunting for, for for trophies mostly because it's fun to me to compete. I love yeah. to make the best possible meads we can make. Um, we just released a mead that we spent ten years aging in Samuel Adams um, oak cast that we got from the Boston yeah, Beer Company. Yeah, I saw company. that. And. Um, we get a, a fairly hefty price point for that. I think it might be the most expensive mead in the world at the moment. Um, but there, there are competition out there from everybody. So I'm sure somebody yeah, yeah. will come out with one. We'll just add a couple of zeros on ours, the end of one of ours and uh, be done with that. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's impressive to see how much we've sold already. Um, we're, we're about to uh, launch in uh, Michigan as well on online sales. And I've got a lot of mead fans out there. Um, but, you know, so from the company perspective, you know, 
I still think of us as a super tiny, small family owned business. And we've grown a lot in the last 11 years to the point where, you know, we just bought a farmstead. It's a hundred acres up in North, North central part of New Hampshire, about 40 minutes from where we are right now. And um, it was built in 1753. So we hope it to become our destination location for, you know, eventually my brewery, my meadery and, you know, uh, on-site food venue and, and a whole lot of more things. But it's really, um, you know, my passion for, for things fermented is, you know, hasn't waned at all. Um, just yep. refinished a, a used home brewing system and fired that up for the first time this past weekend. So I was actually brewing beer by myself uh, without the, the help of my lot of famous friends who brew, uh, let me come brew with them at their breweries. But um, I hope at some point we can have a brewery on property and, and be able to host people from all over the world to come stay and, and brew a beer and share a beer too. And meet. Yeah, I mean, it looks like an awesome, we were just watching the video and Will was like, you'll enjoy this. And I was like, yeah, this, <laughs> this is the dream, isn't it? But uh, uh, just, yeah, but um, that's me getting, getting yeah, into my middle age. It's when um, to leave the city. Yeah, God, I, don't, I don't think it's got anything to do with middle age. I think I had that idea when I was a kid, and I just, yeah. as I sort of grew up, I, I realized it was more and more work. And then it slowly gets to the top, and you're like, I just, I just want to do it already. I'm sick yeah. of working towards it. Um, no, that seems fair. So, do you have any? I guess um, you had loads of success in terms of these competitions. Do you have any advice in terms of people looking to enter, particularly homebrew competitions? That's where most of our listeners are, are kind of homebrew mead makers. Um, yeah, or, so the, know, the, biggest, the biggest thing that I've done on my mead is really focus on quality. You know, so sanitation has to be your religion. You know, you, you have to care about the temperature your yeast ferments at and know your yeast. Um, we use one yeast for the 100 plus different meads that we make. Um, so it likes to ferment at 20 degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius. And, um, you know, I... That's the, you know, I give it, you know, a three degree Fahrenheit shift on, on that, but um, you can't, you know, you can't make, if you're a home mead maker, you shouldn't be trying to do things on the cheap. Buy the freshest, best honey you can. You know, I prefer the lightest colored honeys over the darker honey. It's got a less mineral content. Um, experiment, play around with a lot of different honeys. Um, I made 60 some odd meads one year as a home mead maker, just to play with the temperature and play with the, yeah. you know, all the different honey flavors. So I could build a, you know, concept in my mind of what this honey would do for the flavor when it's finished, because you can taste honey when it's, you know, sweet and you get an impression of what it's going to taste like, but when it ferments and all that sweetness could disappear, you know, where does that leave you, right? What, what are you trying to accomplish? And if you're making something like a bochet and you're trying to work with a caramelization or you know a burnt flavor, well, do you want it to be a hammer or do you want it to be like a tack hammer or do you want it to be some sort of a feathered touch? And so when I've made my bochets, you'll use just a portion of the honey to caramelize so that it's more of a accent, right? So if you think of like really good chefs and how they cook, you know, they're not trying to you know, shove the jalapeno down your throat. You know, they're trying to give you just enough so you can actually taste the flavor and 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 the intricacies of all that. So, you know, all of it, I mean, I wanted to be a chef when I was a kid, child. So I really paid attention to cooking. Um, you know, I realized early on in my life that 
working in a restaurant I was not suited for. I'm a little too heavy set for, <laughs> for that kind of lifestyle. Uh, ovens are hot, stoves are hot, and I like it nice and cool. So I went into computer engineering for the most part of my career until I started this meadery. And um, I've never done it for the money because I was doing way better financially with, with, the, with a software engineering degree and background, but I did it because I loved it. And if you can make mead for the sake of love and really think of it as this is a creation that you're trying to share with, with people. And, and part of what I love about the, the industry is sharing mead with somebody who's never had it or may have had a mead they didn't like and watching yeah. their expression. Right? When the eyes smile, you know, you know you've hit a home run, right? And yeah. it's, um, yeah, the hardest part was believing in my own abilities way back in the day, right? To think that I had the, the skill or the luck to, to be able to do what I've done. I mean, we're at something crazy like 2 million bottles and cans sold in the last 11 years and it just keeps going higher. And yeah, it's just, I, you know, I lose track of, wow, I really do this, you know, and I can, you know, I've been flown to, you know, Australia, twice, Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, Belgium to tour and sample and talk to people about my needs. And um, I can't wait to go back to Europe and yeah. got my vaccinations all done and I'm good and healthy. So I can't wait to uh, maybe do a world tour at some point and just go share the love of what this thing is. Yeah. You know, home mead makers have such an advantage. I mean, you know, I say I don't try to worry about the money because that's why I can make a mead that I sit on for 10 years and not try to, you know, rush it out the door. It's got to taste right, right? You got to have a vision of what you want to make. And as a home mead maker, you got no limitations, right? If you want to use pea blossom flowers, which are illegal here as a commercial meadery in the United States, you can. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to do something, you know, crazy, like use some, uh, you know, flavorings, that you might not be able to get through the government, you can, you know, and, you know, I've judged meads, I've been very fortunate to judge at a number of the international Mazer Cups, um, best of show table. And I have to tell you, there are some amateur mead makers that are top of the class for, mm -hmm. you know, world contribution. And, um, and they're happy, right? They don't yeah. need to yeah, go, of course, yeah. go. And, you know, I can think of several and, you know, I, I kind of coined this expression a few years back and somebody may say I've taken it from somebody else, but to my knowledge, I coined it, but it was <laughs> art in the glass, right? Which is, you know, you can put your, you know, your eyes to seeing the beverage, you know, the meat in your hand and you see the beauty of it, right? So it has to look just amazingly clear and brilliant and sparkle not, and be bright. And then you put your nose into the top of the glass and you smell how amazing all the aromas are, you get nuances of the flowers and the honey and maybe some fruit or the spices that are used. And then you taste it and it all just hits this magical, this magical component. And that's how I, I know instantaneously when I, when I find it, you know, it's like, well, how do you find a, a Renoir or a Monet, right? You know, you're kind of like walking out and you go, wow, <laughs> look how amazing that is, right? And that's the same thing with mead. And that's why, to me, it's this art in a glass concept, which is how do I make something that takes science, right? It takes a lot of yeah. basic knowledge behind all the pieces, but how do you make it an art form? 
And that's where I think, you know, I strive to maintain, you know, I don't want to be a production just cranking the same thing out. Everybody, you know, when we were doing tours would ask, how do you maintain consistency from batch to batch? And, you know, the simple answer is I don't even try. You know, I try to keep it within a frame, you know, yeah. and so that you can recognize the elements, but I'm never trying to hit a specific gravity or, or you know, the color or, I mean, it's got a, you know, we used to, Eric and I, um, so Eric's been with me since the day we started and my wife as well. Um, but Eric and Bernice and I would all sit around and taste a glass of mead a new batch and we'd say, well, that don't suck. <laughs> that, was, that was good. And that meant That's QC. You know, that uh, we could make. And we've always strived to do that. Now we've missed the mark on a, on a few occasions. And, you know, it's not easy to try to be um, perfect. <laughs> it's hard, actually. And, um, you know, the, the, the takeaway, though, from it all is never give up. Just always try to make better and better and better. Yeah. So I guess that, that kind of steps me on to my next question. Looking through you know, your stuff, you do quite a lot with some quite interesting honeys. Uh, do you want to just talk to us about how you source those honeys and, and what you're looking for in a really good quality honey? Yeah. So um, based on my reputation, I get an awful lot of honey sent to me um, from people who want to sell me honey. Yeah. And um, that's not a bad thing. It means I get to try a lot of interesting honeys. And uh, we recently received two from Hawaii. Um, so they're um, organically certified honeys from the islands of Hawaii. And so to get, you know, A, you can't control B, so they can only, they go as far as they can go. And you need yeah. to get organically certified so many acres around your, your, your hives yeah. to get that. And with the interesting thing about the islands, is they can get pretty much a single mono flower type of honey. And so what you'll do is you'll harvest the honey when the flowers are out of bloom. And that way you get pretty much close. This is how you get yeah. any varietal honey. Um, and, you know, we've played with dark honeys. We've gotten honey from uh, Zambia out of Africa where the bees are actually kept in the logs in the tree and they it's a hollowed out log. And the, the poor people that harvest the honey reach into the log and pull the honey out. Um, and then they hoist the log back up into the tree. And you know, so it's certified organic. That was one of the first certified organic honeys uh, we played with. And we, I think are one of the few certified organic meaderies in the world. Um, we make these two that are certified organic. Now we get some honey out of Brazil, um, which is a much, much lighter honey than uh, the honey that was coming out of Zambia, but now we're getting some organic honey out of Tanzania. It's more of an amber bronze uh, color. So like I said, the honey, the darker it is, the higher the mineral content. And what that means is when it ferments through, you have a little more bitterness, um, charcoal-like flavor uh, in your finished mead. So, and you know, you really can tell when it's a particular type of honey, like heather honey from Scotland, uh, the Samuel Adams Brewery had stopped making a beer and they were trying to um, sell some of their honey back when I first started. And I was a little amazed that they were trying to sell me 20,000 pounds. And I said, well, you'll, I'll never use that much honey. And we use some of <laughs> that now. So it's kind of a, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. You know, 20,000 pounds seemed like so much um, way back in the day. And 
you know, we've already used that much and more this year already. Um, so it's kind of, um, and, and the honey, you know, so you know, the nice thing about home brewing is like, you can start small, you can get, you know, a couple of kilograms of honey. And I use um, a ratio of one part honey to three parts water to get a pretty basic, good understanding of what this honey is going to taste like. And if, if you follow that ratio, if you start with a small 20 liter batch and you scale to a 20,000 liter batch, it all scales. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you formulate your recipes and, and try to figure out what, what am I going to do? You know, if, if you worry about the, you know, just simple um, mathematics around it all, you know, some of the things may not scale to that, that degree that you may not want, but you know, I've learned tips and tricks on like how to make a methylin over the years. Like we add our spices after fermentation so that I can time how long the spices are in contact with the finished musk or mead so that I can get um, the perfect amount of flavor and aroma without getting some of the, you know, if you add vanilla beans too early into your fermentation process, you know, you're getting a lot more of the tannins off the, the skins mm -hmm. of the vanilla bean than you would if you take three days at the end of the you know fermentation do you apply the same thing uh, i see you do like a, a lot more uh, a few more hydromels and stuff at the at, at uh, this stage as well does that mean you sort of apply those processes to your hydromels as well or is that more of a sort of higher abv um, when that fermentation is finished so one of the things that we're really well known for is the the, the overall quality of the flavor that we produce and the way i'm able to make my hydromels is to really focus uh, making a really good strong mead first. And then uh, we basically dilute it down to strength. So okay. one of the tips of making like um, two types of beer is you make a really strong beer, then you can water it down or you know, add the water to make it a weaker beer, um, that, which saves you in fermentation capacity. Mm -hmm. So like when we're making you know, a sizer and we wanna then make you know, our cider, you know, we'll add the water to that to bring it to the strength that we need or that we're advertising. And that way we, our hundred barrel tank becomes essentially a 200 barrel tank so that, you know, we can make more with the space that we have until I get my bigger facility. But this has worked so well for us over the years. You know, we, we definitely had to learn a few lessons <laughs> on how to yeah. sulfite and sorbate uh, when changing the ratios and we didn't calculate the the difference of what the water would do to the sulfiding um, parts per million calculations. And uh, it makes a hell of a difference. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Um, Cause we've lost product in the past, but um, you know, it's, that's a, a, you know, I'd rather know that I've got the best product out there than try to sell something for, for a dollar. No, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. That, that process of, uh, of, um, liquoring down is is yeah one that we've, we've sort of had a bit of a look at and and i do have some you know some fears around it and and it's just not what we've done before so i think it would just yeah. require a bit of thinking about and a bit of experimentation so i mean yeah when we're doing other abvs meads, meads we do just brew them to the right uh the you know the final grab um, yeah and then we use pasteurization so it kind of balances out that way for us but so i've been quite intrigued in doing that system yeah yeah yeah, we've, um, when I looked at, you know, trying to make hydromels that were, you know, fermented to the strength we wanted to start, I was too worried that the mouthfeel would be too watery. 
And mm. I wanted to be able to maintain that, you know, full texture that, that I've come to enjoy about my own meats and replicate yeah. it into our hydromels. But, you know, I mean, I say it like, woohoo, I'm this expert. I mean, we, we have really good distribution because I've worked, you know, me and my team has worked really hard to continually focus on, you know, hey, have you tried a really good meat? Yeah, and, and, and making that happen. Here in the United States is a chain total wine and more, and they pretty much carry my product in um, almost every state that um, they sell in, I think. Maybe a few not, but you know, we're, we, we've had our share of growing pains over the years as, you know, I care so much about it, I get pushy. <laughs> I'm trying to work with distributors. And we've certainly worked our way through a lot of uh, distribution relationships um, for better or for not, um, but it's not due to a lack of caring. It's just alignment of goals and dreams. And, you know, yeah. it's hard to make a macro distributor understand that, you know, $20,000 a month in my mead is a lot for us. And it's not even a drop in the bucket for them. You know, you'd think if we could give somebody a million dollars a year in business that they would trip over themselves to, to do more. That's not the case. They do not <laughs> yep. million dollars a day in, in some of these other products. So it's, you know, it's, it's too much work for them. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity um, in the, at least the United States distribution market to, to do better. And, you know, I've been on a few shows and, like Ireland and stuff where they've flown here to the United States to film me, to put me on TV in Ireland. I'm like, oh, all right, here comes deals from Ireland. Nothing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, uh, meat is a, meat is not a, a get rich quick scheme. That's for sure. It's, it's a lot of love and a lot of, uh, fermentation and a lot of, uh, word of mouth. But I, this is why I see us as colleagues and not as competition. Right, so yeah, I mean that's that's what that's what we always say is that we're not really competing against each other. We're just competing against other drinks, like yes. and trying to trying to grow the pie for everyone. Um, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast and we're trying to chat to some more people. Uh, also, because it gets quite lonely. We are we are we are not that many mead makers yeah. in the UK, <laughs> um, and there are obviously many more in the states. So it's just nice to chat to some other people who have similar dreams and problems. I guess yeah, is how I yeah, put it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I'm planning to come over uh, at least in February for the European Mead Maker uh, Conference. Um, hopefully going to present. I don't know about what yet, but I haven't really put my head around that. But yeah, I really do like sharing, you know, the information I have, even though the first time I was asked to uh, teach a class on mead making, I'm like, what do I know about mead making? I know how to do it, but I can breathe too. I can't teach you how to breathe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I've... Uh... I found myself in sort of that that position where I keep saying like I'm not I'm not, I'm not a master mead maker like I'm a mead maker and I have been for nearly four years now and it's it's one of those things where I'm like I'm still just like finding big chunks or patches in my knowledge that is that that is missing you know and that just comes through that process of experimentation and talking to people and running through how they do one thing or how they solve the problem in another way and yeah just... and that's one of the most exciting things about the category for me anyway is the fact it is quite new and there isn't this huge base of knowledge to draw on. So you, you have to kind of teach yourself and experiment. And yeah, it learn gives you the opportunity others. to, right? Like yeah. I, I came from wine and that's very, very rigid. You know, it's a, it's a little bit more flexible now, but it, it's a very rigid sort of discipline. And uh, yeah, it was kind of nice to come into this and see everybody being, 
you know, so open about what they do and don't know and really want to share those sort of things to create better mead so mm. people can try better mead. And, and that just helps us all out in the long run. Yeah. If you think about how much research has gone into wine making and, and the growing of grapes and all, all that, I mean, mead making knowledge bases. Tiny, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't exist. So, you know, there, there's, you know, I, I mean, I consider a lot of, you know, well-known mead makers, personal friends, because, you know, like I said, it's, it's not competition. It's, you know, there's a meadery not even five miles down the road from us. And, you know, I love what Jason and Margot have done with Ancient Fire and Sapa. So there's more, I think, meaderies per capita in New Hampshire than any other place in this country. Uh, and, you know, we weren't the first in New Hampshire. We'd bought out um, the equipment from a meadery that had gone out of business. Um, and when I started, um, we have a liquor control commission here in the state, but one of their auditors came in and, and saw my little garage and he, he kind of chuckled. He says, well, don't ever quit your day job. You never sell a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, nobody drinks mead in New Hampshire. And, and, you know, we sell a lot of mead in New Hampshire, you know, you know, uh, you know pallets worth go out the door um, as, as we try to keep up with everything. But we have, you know, fairly small operation. I mean, I've got two people that run my production team. You know, I've got three or four people in sales, a uh, general manager and my wife and I. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and my focus right now is the new farmstead, which is eating up all my time. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's amazing how much uh, work a 258 year old house has um, yeah. <laughs> behind the walls and what you're going to find. Um, but yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a blessing though. Yeah, let, let let's get into that. I, I we talked a little bit about it at the start, but I've been excited to sort of get. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about this project and what your ambitions are and and you know sort of what you what are your goals for this? Yeah, so I've always dreamed of a destination location, right? So a place where people could come, hang out, want to come back, build experiences. Because the one key thing that that makes people happy in life is an experience like if you think of going to like a disney world property you spend an awful lot of money but yeah. when you come out of there your kids your family is pretty darn happy right so i'm like yeah there's a lot of money however that's an experience will last a lifetime right so so i learned early on that experiences matter right and part of the the way that i've always taught my employees is it's not a tasting it's not just a tour it's it's how do you make people feel just welcome and build the excitement and build that part of it for them. And, and so, you know, we're in an industrial warehouse here. It's roughly 6,000 square feet. Um, it's not very big. It's right alongside a highway. It's, it's kind of like, eh, and we're, we're cracking at the seams, right? There's nothing, you know, I've had to become creative on how to make everything. Well, my wife and I were talking about trying to find a, a place to have our destination location for several years. And I was pretty much of the mindset, I ain't making money <laughs> where we are. How do you think anybody's going to back me to finance this, um, this new venture? And, uh, you know, COVID hit and we were about ready to make an offer on a, a local farm here, you know, just a few miles down the road. Didn't have everything I wanted, but it was, it was a big horse barn. Our farm and you know had some big buildings and stuff that I thought would work out but it really wasn't you know this uh inspiring place 
But again, I was kind of focused on the experience and I think we could, we could cover that. Yeah. However, COVID hit and that day I had to lay off my entire staff um, and pretty much shut our operations as you know we went into a complete lockdown, um, really coming into work because I had nothing else to do and um, made it through the pandemic. You know, the government's been rather helpful at, you know, trying to give us stimulus to keep us alive and going and keep employees on the payroll and everything. And we started to turn a corner and, you know, um, late last year, I had some COVID, my wife got COVID um, if, well, in between that. So we, in October, we find this, this farmstead and it's a hundred acres, it's up on top of a hill. It's in a valley and it's got panoramic views from, from every angle you can imagine. And it's mostly pasture, so the land's been cleared. There's some apple trees on the property. There's a working apple orchard across the street. Um, and I made my mind up that this was gonna happen. And I've always been told what I couldn't do in my life, but I've never let anybody tell me what I can't do stop me from doing what I want. And my determination was to make this happen, and we did. So on February 18th of this year, uh, we closed on the property and we moved in. But like I said, in December, you know, we had um, given our notice for the apartment we were leasing. And uh, as of December 31st, I figured, you know, it's October, you have notice, if we'll yeah. be into a new place, everything will be great. <laughs> and uh, no, <laughs> so I ended up moving uh, my wife and I into the metery. Uh, we took over the, the break room and my office. Yeah, that's my dream. <laughs> to live here. Um, <laughs> Alcohol consumption might have gone up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and then we caught COVID. And uh, so then we moved into an apartment or a hotel room uh, while we got over, over all that. But um, thankfully, none of us got really sick too bad. You know, it's weird to lose your sense of smell if, when you're sensing and smelling and tasting things all the time as part of yeah, this. scary, especially uh, when those things coming out that it might not return and all that. And I was, I was, you know, afraid of that myself. I was like, yeah, but if I end up with it, like, how long is it going to take to be able to get these sort of uh, sensory things back? Yeah, and it's weird too because you're breathing fine and you think, well, if you lose your sense of smell, maybe you're going to be congested or whatever. It's yeah. not how it works. It's just gone. You're like, whoa. It's so <laughs> but, strange. Um, yeah, so we, we, we found this farmstead. It's got a 7,000 square foot house. So the house is bigger than my current metery. Yeah. Um, but um, two, well, 6,000 square foot pole barn that we want to make into a wedding venue. So when I say it's a majestic view to, to the, the place, you got to check out overthemoonfarmstead.com, the video that we put together to kind of highlight the vision that we have. Uh, right now, we're trying to work with the town of Pittsfield to get all the planning approvals and everything. I thought this was just going to be a kind of key walk in, throw oh, in yeah. the tasting room and get up and running. Um, nope. <laughs> Not that easy. Um, so $20,000 later, we have engineered plans being put together. Um, gravel, drainage, lighting, parking lots, whatever. Um, but I'm, I tend to be pretty frugal because there's not a lot of money to spend. And, you know, when I just wish it was an easier, well-documented process to say, okay, stop yeah. here, do this, do this, do this, not, oh, all right. Well, I'm figuring I got to hire and, you know, somebody to come in and at least fix the rotting floors, right? So that that's easy, right? You hire somebody, woohoo, spend the money. He's like, okay, I need a plan. I'm like, yeah, plan is fix the floor. 
Uh, plans, and I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, that's, that's the when you realize it's going to cost you a lot more money. Um, but yeah, the uh, it, literally we see a sunrise every morning over the top of the valley. Uh, it's breathtakingly beautiful. The um, we've got four beehives now on the property. I get to see deer pretty much daily out in the back, wild turkeys. Um, the, you know, we've got a waterfall. There's a gorge on the property. It's uh, to say it's breathtaking. Pretty special, yeah. Uh, it's it, as you drive up to the facility around this one corner, and you're looking up on top of the hill, and there's this beautiful, you know, will be beautiful, uh, majestic farmhouse sitting on the top of this uh, hill like a beacon. And you know, my goal is this is going to be where people come and propose to their future husband or wife or whatever and, and really build memories and you know maybe we'll do sleigh rides or you know the first thing I did when I bought the properties I got this seven foot long toboggan sled and went sledding down <laughs> one of the hills uh forgetting how how much of a walk it is back up to the top yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah it was and and so you know it's it's crazy to be working on on things that you love and dream of and seeing the progress being made and think, I'm making this happen. And, you know, we all have that power, right? So people will never do what they don't think they can do, right? So if you believe you can do something, you pretty much can make it happen. So I've found that to be true in just about everything I've tried in life, whether it was, you know, going to a software engineering school when I was in high school and told that I wasn't smart enough to become a software engineer uh, working with folks like Tim Berners-Lee on the World Wide Web Consortium um, way back in the day and helping to build some of that infrastructure. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been, everybody likes to say I'm lucky. I think a lot of hard work goes to making. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of hard work that goes into becoming lucky. Okay, I can, yeah, I can promise you, you that. Keep taking the chances as well. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You have to keep and you keep out getting up and you keep getting knocked yeah, down as well. Exactly, you know, yeah. you don't give up, and and that's the uh, you know, I mean, I've made like if I reflect back on meads, I remember some of the meads I made when I first started, and they weren't all great. You know, it wasn't like I just came out and just started mixing honey and water, and everything was roses. You know, there were some clunkers in there on the way. Yeah. And, you know, what my father taught me in life is don't quit when you make something wrong. Figure it out and do better. And, yeah. you know, you'll, I mean, so that's why I'm tearing up floors and <laughs> moving fireplaces and, you know, I'm, I'm making my dreams come true. And, you know, to think of people being able to, to share that, you know, like, Seeing people enjoy it's like you know enjoying your meat or something. Yeah. When you when you put so much of your heart and soul into something and it brings a smile to somebody's face, it's just it's just such a such a beautiful feeling. Exactly. But um let, let let's crack this. We do like to keep them under sort of 45, 50 minutes. Um we do love chatting about meat, so we might as well bring it back around. So in, in the meat world at the moment, it's sort of, you know, in, in America, there's a lot more meaderies than there is here. You know, is there anything sort of interesting happening in the meat world that you sort of are noticing or a trend or anything like that that's that's worth sort of, you know, going, oh, that's cool? Yeah, we're starting to get recognized, right? So just yesterday, um, the fine folks at um, Colony Meadery down in Pennsylvania were visited by the second gentleman of the United States. So, you know, I haven't gotten all the details yet on that, but, you know, that's pretty impressive in my book. 
you know, and you know, my friends um, who own Charm City Meadery were in featured in one of the HBO shows uh, in the cover opening shot, you know, Charm City Meadery. I'm like, there it is. How awesome. Yeah, that's cool. you know? So, you know, we've we started to tip the, the scale, you know, and so, you know, the, the hardest thing that people need to understand is the fight for shelf space is never ending, right? Every new kombucha or every new uh, seltzer, hard seltzer or everything else, somebody's having to pay the price. And, you know, my job in life is to protect that and protect and earn that spot, you know? And mm -hmm. so that's you know, where our customers make the biggest difference is by saying, I want quality. I want this one. And, you know, or maybe I want to see a whole section of me because, you know, Moonlight does a great job. Perfect. But what about these other guys? What I like their stuff too. And I'm more than happy to help build that entryway for other folks to have better quality product on the markets. You know, part of uh, my licenses now allow me to import uh, mead from other countries here to the United States. I'm just too busy to get to it at the moment, but at some point I want to be able to have, you know, this, this mead mecca um, for, for people to be able to say, you know what, you know, if Fairbrother can, can believe in not just his beverage, but in other people's beverage, maybe that's an opportunity, right? And so if I can, you know, make a better world for other people, and it's, it's simply because I like choices. You know, I don't make so many different meads for customers. I make them for me. <laughs> you know, that's the simplest truth, which is you don't have to like what I like. I need to like what I like, because if yeah. you, the customer don't like it, who's drinking it? Me. So, you know, this is, this is self-serving. And, and it's uh, hard to make something for an abstract concept as yeah, well. You exactly. know, everybody's palate is so diverse. You know, if you don't, if you're not making it for yourself and you're trying to make it for somebody, some persona that you're building, it's, you're just, yeah, you're kind of lost. Yeah. 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 You can't chase the soccer ball down the field. You got to play your position. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Well, is there anything you want to ask us before we, we wrap it up, Mike? We realize that we just uh, kind of asked you loads of questions and, but that's kind of the idea of this. But if there's anything you want to ask us, now's your yeah. chance before we Tell kind of wrap up. Tell me about the you make, guys. So give me a quick intro about yourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started the business 2013 um, and we've always, I've always wanted to do uh, what we call hydromels or lower ABV meads. Um, so for a couple of reasons, one, I think just the, the only mead that was in the UK at the time was like Lindisfarne. Um, mm -hmm. It was like, uh, and it's really strong, really sweet not really to my palate um and so wanting to kind of um open up the category a bit more really um and get it out to a few more people so the way that the alcohol licensing laws work in the uk is that the, the tax this is really boring but the taxation means that you can either make them at four percent five and a half percent or fifteen percent there are kind of bands and you pay the same tax if it's six percent or if it's fifteen percent so our meads are four percent or five and a half or 12 so you kind of unfortunately it's hard for us to play in that sort of six seven eight percent space um and so we kind of gravitate towards the lower abv meads which kind of fit in a bit more with the volume products as well like people drinking a few more of them um so mostly what we make is a range of four percent cans uh which you can also get in total wines i'm i'm pleased to say um so um you've got the the hopped mead the hibiscus mead the citra mead uh, sorry citrus sea mead and uh, our sour mead as well and they're kind of a pretty good ex kind of expression of what we do here. Um, but yeah, 
that's kind of it, isn't it? And then we do make some stronger stuff. We're working with like yeah. single origin honeys and monofloral honeys. And that's kind of um, the, the the other side to what we're doing is yeah. a little bit more sort of, you know, we, we're, we're an urban uh, meadery as well, you know, so we, we like using London honeys and, and doing some, you know, a little bit more sort of wine focus. Like uh, we do a yeah. vintage every year where we take the honey from the same hives and just trying to show people that, that terroir of honey and just how diverse honey can be season to season, hive to hive flora to flora as well you know so we we did a couple of projects where we sort of took 12 24 different types of honey and brewed them in all in the same way and then just sort of sat down with people and just went through and said like okay these are all the the fermentation didn't change in any of these the only difference here is is the honey itself and just looking at the rainbow of colors across the honeys and and the profiles that came from them and, and getting people to taste the honey with it as well as you were sort of mentioning before like you can taste the honey and you can kind of get an idea about what's interesting about it but until you start chewing away at that sugar and and, and getting down to the nitty-gritty of it you don't exactly know what's going to pop up and sometimes that's amazing and sometimes it's it's a little disappointing but uh, different just different to what you expected <laughs> no never disappointed but um it's yeah that that sort of playing around in between that eight to fourteen percent with yeah. these sort of uh, more specialized honeys because they, they need that as well you know the hydromel is great for for adding adjuncts and 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 playing with fruit and things like that for me as well but when it's you know really showcasing the honey five and a half percent is probably as yeah. low as I want to go and that's only because we have quite a nice hydromel recipe for a, a orange blossom honey at five and a half percent and it is you know the oldest recipe the most refined but it's uh, it's yeah it's it's difficult to push that across lots of different honey especially something like a heather where you just it needs it needs work it needs yeah. to be respected it's, <laughs> it needs it's... Time. A lot of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but uh but yeah that's that's yeah. kind of kind of our our struggle i guess or our journey yeah yeah i think we're getting there we're getting there well, keep yeah good yeah keep well th out. thanks a lot for your time yeah it's been lovely speaking to you hey guys cheers cheers take, take care. care and good luck Thanks for listening guys, hopefully you enjoyed that, so hit the subscribe and like button and follow us on all our social media and we'll see you again next week. If you've got any questions or thoughts or just want to chat about meat and honey, then drop us an email to podcast at dawsons.co.uk. Or better still, jump on our Instagram, ask us uh, any questions that you have and watch us scramble to try to find the answer and uh, look like we know what we talked about. Or if you want to see what I look like, you can head on to the website at www.dawsons.co.uk.